Testimony began today in the Pittsburgh Synagogue Massacre Trial. The 2018 shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue left 11 people dead and two others injured. It was the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history. Jury selection took more than four weeks, and a 50-year-old white man is facing 63 hate crime and gun-related charges. Well, the House was back in session today to start the process of voting on the bill Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden hashed out over the weekend to raise the debt ceiling and cut spending. Now, House GOP leaders are searching for the 218 votes needed to pass the deal. The deal is a long way from the $4 trillion in deficit reductions House Republicans included in their own bill to lift the debt limit, which cleared the House last month but cannot pass the Senate. Hard right Republicans say the deal is a no-go. Uganda imposed the death penalty for some same-sex activity. An anti-LGBTQ bill was signed into law just this weekend. Anyone found to have had sex with a person of the same gender faces life in prison or in some cases, death. Well, Russia's capital was hit by a drone strike this morning. Attacks deep inside Russia territory are rare. Two residential buildings were damaged in Moscow. No serious injuries were reported. The Miami Heat will face the Denver Nuggets in the NBA Finals. The Heat defeated the Celtics 103-84 to in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. Miami thwarted Boston's comeback bid after the Celtics lost the first three games of the series. The Nuggets will host Game 1 of the NBA Finals on this Thursday night. Well, Trump and DeSantis, that's Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, will be making competing trips to Iowa this week, beginning with DeSantis on Tuesday kicking off his first swing after officially announcing his candidacy for president last week. And Trump will arrive on Wednesday and appear at a breakfast meeting of conservative activists in Urbandale. Well, recent history has shown an Iowa win is far from determinative. The last three GOP winners in caucuses without an incumbent did not go on to be the party's nominee. Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Blood Lab Theranos, who Theranos, who became the face of Silicon Valley duplicity after her company collapsed amid fraud claims, reported today to a minimum security prison to begin her sentence of more than 11 years. She was found guilty last January of four counts of wire fraud. Her conviction was the culmination of a saga that began in 2003 when she dropped out of Stanford University at age 19 to start a company whose technology, she claimed, could diagnose a multitude of conditions with just a pinprick of blood. Well, The Little Mermaid makes box office history and a big splash with $95.5 million in its opening. Disney estimates the film starring Halle Bailey as the mermaid and Melissa McCarthy as her sea witch nemesis, Ursula, will reach $117.5 million by the time the holiday is over. Now, this film ranks as the fifth biggest Memorial Day weekend opening ever. Well, this is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trendy news, 
expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. In this hour, I'm joined by two brilliant contributors, Professor Larry Walker from the University of Central Florida and UCLA Professor Tyrone Howard. And in my second hour, I'm talking to parents who are taking their fight for social justice all the way to the United Nations. They are part of the second session of the Permanent Forum on People of African Descent. Leaders from the National Parents Union will join me in hour two to talk about their presentations to the UN and how they were received. But before I bring my guest on, here's what I'm thinking in real time. Now, you heard those outstanding numbers for the Little Mermaid this weekend. Those numbers, $117 million is expected. Uh, But remember, when Halle Bailey was cast in this live-action remake of The Little Mermaid, some critics blasted the decision, proclaiming that Princess Ariel could not possibly be Black. Well, a professor who studies mythology of mermaids and the present-day communities that portray them says that view couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, mermaids are mythological creatures, but their African origins are real, according to Professor Jalandra Davis, an assistant professor of English at the University of California, Riverside. She says some mermaids are Black. Professor Davis went on to say people often feel like when they're watching something with Black people or reading something with Black people that they need to learn something. She says we don't have the luxury to just represent history and to do anything or to show that anything is possible. She says it's important because it can open up possibilities for the things we can create and the possibilities for our children in terms of thinking about what they can do in the world and what they can create. A pillar of the Black mermaid community is aquatic diversity, she says, and teaching Black children to swim to ensure their safety. Among Black Americans, especially children, swimming proficiency rates are low largely owing to segregation-era policies that denied non-white people access to public pools and beaches. But the professor says, similar to the fictional African utopia Wakanda in Black Panther, Black mermaid lore is a way to look at the kind of worlds and societies that African people might have created without white supremacy and without any disruption. I say bravo to Disney for having the courage to cast Ariel, the Little Mermaid, uh, using a Black actress. And obviously, the viewing public agreed with the casting decision, so much so that it became a blockbuster weekend movie, holiday weekend movie. And hopefully this opens doors for other African-American actresses and actors to play leading roles and play characters that aren't often cast as Black people. Hey, the deal is Black folks go to the movies. We love to see Black folks on the screen. And when you uh, cast a movie with Black characters, we will come. We will support it. And studio, you will make money, which is the bottom line. That's what I'm thinking about in real time. When we come forward, more on today's trendy news and my expert contributors right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. 
The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back and in our one of Ariva Martin in real time, I am joined by two brilliant contributors today, Professor Larry Walker from the University of Central Florida and UCLA Professor Tyrone Howard. And uh, professors, I think the biggest news of the weekend and today is the deal between Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy about lifting the debt ceiling or the limit for the debt ceiling, lifting the limit for the debt ceiling. And it looks like despite what may be a deal between the two leaders, the Republicans, the extremist Republicans, the super conservative, the hard right Republicans are saying this is a no go. They're saying the cuts to domestic spending are not deep enough. Uh, and even some Democrats are balking, saying, look, we, we gave up too much in this deal. One of the things that I find so just hypocritical about Republicans, those that are complaining about this deal, they want to raise, and I guess in this compromise, they got some slight increase in the age of individuals who receive food stamps. Basically, if you are between 50 and 54 years old and you don't have children, you will have to now have some kind of work requirement in order to receive your food stamps. We're talking about things that are just going to help you eat. And this was a big deal for Republicans, yet they want to increase defense spending, which we know means lots of big contracts to uh, big corporations. But why are they picking on adults who just need food? Dr. Howard, what, what is up with these folks? You know, I hate to say it, Ari, but this is unfortunately the Republican way. You know, how do we find ways to say that we are all about small government? We want to continue to cut social programs and, and, and continue to penalize our most vulnerable populations. And so when you get to the heart of what you just outlined about the fact that Republicans ask, have asked for more uh, increases in in in, in uh, defense spending, and in, in my way of interpreting that, one of the things that means is we're going to send more money to Ukraine to fight a war that's not really ours. While we have people here continue to to go without their most essential needs being met, poverty continues to grow in certain parts of our country. And this is the 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 party that says that they are concerned about all Americans. Uh, I do find it a bit intriguing, though. I have to say, Reba, that the House uh, Freedom Caucus uh, and 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 those folks are are questioning uh, if they can support this. I do think this deal will get done because this is what compromise is all about. But I do wonder what this means for uh, Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, because some of these folks from these most from the extreme right are starting to question if he reneged on some of the deals he made in order to get the votes. Remember, he went through 13, 14 votes before he got the votes needed. And I think uh, Speaker McCarthy made some some promises then that, according to some on the far right, he seems to be going back on now. Well, Professor Walker, this showdown was bound to happen, uh, as Dr. Howard said uh, McCarthy had to give away everything, the kitchen sink, his you know blood from his children, everything to get crowned as speaker, to get the votes he needed to become speaker of the House. And in doing so, he made promises that seemingly are contrary to this deal that he had to cut so that he didn't hold the whole world economy hostage. We knew this was going to happen. So where does he go from here? I, I agree with Dr. Howard. This deal is going to happen. The House nor the Senate wants to hold the entire world economy up because of promises that Kevin McCarthy made. But does this mean that his speakership could be in jeopardy? So from, you know, my colleagues talked about, you know, the multiple votes it took for him to become the Speaker of the House. So with all the, during that negotiation process with many members of the, his own caucus, 
he made a lot of compromises. So much so that basically this entire tenure will be like someone holding a gun to your head as to kind of use it uh, best descriptor. And it's going to be like that <laughs> until until next year. So this is the deal with the devil that he made. No matter what, whatever kind of deals he works out. And let's be clear, this is how politics is supposed to work. Give and take. Um, no matter what other you know kind of future compromises he makes, those right wingers, what they want to do is burn it all down. Let's be clear about what they really want here. They don't want to govern. They want to go on television and they want to, you know, raise campaign funds, but they don't they don't really want to govern. The other thing is really quickly here. What I want to say is, Reva, I'm a former congressional staffer. I want to give a shout out to the White House and congressional staffers, because I know what that's like to burn the midnight oil to work on some of this legislative um, language. So shout out to them. But McCarthy, for them, this I, is I, this Let me is just tough. say this. Professor Walker, thank you so much for saying that, because these bills end up sometimes there are a thousand pages. I mean, this is hard work that's done, not in the uh, Oval Office with the president and the speaker. Of course, they're meeting. They may meet for an hour, but there are staffers who are working around the clock coming up with this language that ultimately becomes, you know, the, the deals. And as you read about this deal, there are gazillion side deals. Talk to us about that, Professor Walker, because I was a little puzzled by that. You know, one of the reports says, well, you know, Biden didn't really give away too much as it relates to domestic programs, these, pro, you know, these safety net programs, because there's a side deal, you know, that, that makes sure that people won't lose their benefits. How do those side deals get, you know, memorialized? You know, who remembers them 30 days later? What are those side deals? So in this case, what I, I think what you'll find is President Biden has said to McCarthy, listen, because uh, remember, they got to go through the appropriations process. <laughs> so, you know, pass the appropriations bills. So I'm quite sure what some of what happens is say, listen, as we get to the appropriate, we get to the, this, go through this appropriation process. I remember that you were fair with me as we deal with the debt ceiling. And often these conversations and listen, former Senator Biden has been through this many, many times. So he understands how much of this give and take is. And remember, he's also really a moderate Democrat. So a lot of these kind of side conversations are part of building trust. And secondly, because he's the president of the United States saying to McCarthy, hey, you know, as we, like I said, we get to these appropriation bills, I may be willing to more, be a little bit more flexible on certain issues. But overall, let me say something. This is a win for President Biden. And I look, you're going to hear rhetoric on both sides. He doesn't have to deal with this for two years. That gets him beyond the presidential election. That is huge for him. And he didn't really give up a lot. I mean, unspent COVID money. They raised, like you said, a SNAP age limit from uh, 49 to 54. But more el individuals were eligible. Now those who are unhoused are eligible who were formerly veterans. So there's a, there, and like I said, this is give and take, but this is ultimately a win for President Biden. I'm glad you said that because, uh, Professor Howard, the first thing McCarthy came out and said was, there's nothing in this bill for Democrats. <laughs> I mean, he, was, he was trying to go on the record for his party, letting them know I didn't give away anything. Those Democrats didn't get a thing. I went in there and, you know, I, I was I was gangster on these negotiations and everything is favorable for Republicans. Now, we know that is so far from the truth, but that's the way he is spinning it. Yeah, the theater of politics is never ending, right? And so what worries me at the end of the day is that, you know, folks sit and talk about sort of these very side deals and pieces of legislation, but these are millions of people who are being affected by this. 
I think, you know, Professor Walker spot on. I mean, the fact that we're talking about close to, I think, $30 million of, of COVID money that was being clawed back, that will be redirected into various programs, that matters. That affects people's everyday lives. And so a part, a part of what I hope we see here is that that this is what governing is supposed to be about, to Professor Walker's point, where you take folks who are saying, look, negotiations that no side is going to be completely happy with what they get. But I remember a time, and I'm sure you so do you, even where, you know, where, where folks could truly be bipartisan, right? Where you say, okay, you know, we're not going to get everything we want on the Democratic side. Neither is the Republican side. But this is about how we leave for what is best for America. Not trying to sort of satisfy those on, on the far extreme because that leads to gridlock. And, and I don't think folks understand the seriousness of the debt ceiling. When you default, if America defaults on, 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 its, on, on, on its, 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 its promises and on its payments, this has global consequences that affects Billions of people worldwide, worldwide. So we can't see a situation where we let petty politics get in the way of people's ability to do the essential things, such as feeding their families and keeping a roof over their heads and do the things that are essential to just trying to, to trying to make ends meet. Yeah, one of the other interesting areas, uh, Professor Walker, in this bill is the IRS. So Biden allocated, I don't know, $80 billion or so. The IRS is so antiquated. It's its system, it's computer system, it's, you know, use of technology, so antiquated. Uh, thousands and thousands of returns uh, have not been processed. People's refunds, you know, checks get mailed out to them late. And so he wanted to reform the IRS. The Republicans pushed back on this for fear that reforming the IRS means hiring more agents, being more efficient, use of, using technology better, and going after tax cheats, folks who cheat on their taxes. You would think Republicans who are supposed to be fiscally responsible would want the government to go after those folks who are cheating on their taxes, but they're concerned that this could mean audits of wealthy CEOs and, and other you know wealthy business people. So they are adamantly opposed to reforming the IRS, which is the, the means in which the government collects money, you know, that it uses for defense spending and for domestic other domestic programs. How ridiculous is that? Well, you know, actually, it's it's par for the course for the Republicans because they represent the richest one percent. <laughs> you know, they're they're advocating. Listen, when they go on Fox News, they're talking about, you know, you know, you know, talking about the blue collar person. But in reality, they don't care about any of those folks. How do we know that? Let's look at the Trump tax cut they passed just a couple of years ago that added to the deficit they're always talking about and rewarded those richest individuals who you just described. So as they're, they have moved away from this party, like I said, a kind of blue collar party when it comes to really policy issues. And they're really the policy. They're, they're really the, 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 the party of those who are well off and want to make sure they don't have to deal with the IRS. So, and, and you know, they've convinced the people that they watch them, a lot of these plat conservative platforms. The IRS is out to get them and not really, like you said, recoup all this money from the richest one to 10 percent of Americans. It's just mind boggling, though, Professor Howard, if you are concerned about the deficit, if you are concerned about spending and there are pots of money out there that could be called back from individuals who have not properly filed their taxes, haven't properly paid their taxes. It just seems like it would be a no brainer that it would be the Republicans who would be pushing to reform the IRS, to make the IRS more efficient and to ensure uh, that, you know, monies owed to the government were recovered. Yeah, but the key here is, Reuben, you know this, and I think part of what we cannot separate out is the fact that 
these legislators are looking out for the folks with their primary donors. And the folks with their primary donors who keep them in office are part of that 1% that Professor Walker just talked about. And so I always find that just to be this strange irony that there's oftentimes this way in which in this particular matter, the IRS is seen as the boogeyman, right? We don't want the IRS to come after the, the folks who are, are, are oftentimes paying the, the, the least amount of taxes. But yet you still look at who a big part of the base are for Republicans is folks who are in middle America who are who are just the working poor, yet they don't see how their interests are not being advocated for. When you've got billions of dollars in taxes that are not being paid, that could be redirected to those in Appalachia and the Sun Belt and all parts of this country, how they don't see that as somehow sort of against their interests. It's just mind-boggling me. It just speaks to the power of narrative to say one thing and do something else. And I think this issue around the IRS is fascinating because I think in so many ways, I think you have folks who move money and who, who underpay taxes. Taxes, don't want this moment to be somehow, uh, you know, as Malcolm said, chickens coming home to roost, if you will. Yeah, again, you're right. I mean, everything you think about or say or try to analyze as it relates to the Republicans, you have to just remember, you know, who they are, you know, who's their base and what part of their base are they really appealing to? Uh, let's unpack some more of what's in this compromise, Professor Walker. Student loan debt, tell us what happens because there was some compromise made with respect to student loan debt. And we know this could be a hot button issue for Joe Biden going into the 2024 election because young people in particular were really motivated by his promise to relieve them of student loan debt. And many were disappointed when the amount that was going to be forgiven wasn't as high as they had hoped. So could the compromise that Biden reached regarding student loan debt in this deal uh, come back to bite him during the campaign? Yeah, well, you know, the Reva, I think the overarching issue about that is, right, look, we, you know, we talked about the policy with student loan, but you know this as, as an attorney, the Supreme Court is likely to, to strike, to strike, to say this is not legal. We know that it's clear. And I think people, this is one of the things we, and we have to do a better job in terms of teaching people about how the different branches of government work. So President Biden eventually being pushed understands that student loan debt is important. Obviously, continue to try to maintain that in this bill, but it wouldn't even. It doesn't matter because a, a conservative Supreme Court is likely to say that it's not legal. It's unfortunate because no one's complained about all the COVID money <laughs> that you know people receive relief for. But this we know because specifically the student loan debt because it disproportionately impacts people of African descent and would disproportionately benefit us. You know, it's always a no-go in kind of, in, kind of, in politics in this in today's society. Real quickly, Professor Howard, do you think Biden's going to have any issue? Though I hear what you're saying, Professor Walker. Yes, we need better civics lessons uh, taught in our schools, but might the message go out, Professor Howard, that Biden caved on student loan debt, and that could impact the way students are thinking about this upcoming election? Absolutely. But I do think it's a short term loss because I think people will hold Biden accountable for what he didn't do for student loan debt. But as as Professor Walker said, if it goes to the Supreme Court, it can be seen as something that the Supreme Court ruled on. But let me tell you this. At the end of the day, I think when it comes down to the election of 2024 and the folks who are most hurt by student loan debt, when their choices are going to be Trump or DeSantis and Biden, I think Biden knows he can still bank on those folks coming to vote for him. But he can't take it for granted because if you don't get young folks, young folks out to vote, that could have some serious consequences in terms of his ability to win. 
Yeah, no doubt. I think if you get those voters to the poll, they they pull the lever for the Democrat. The key, though, is getting them to the polls if they believe that a promise was made that wasn't kept. Uh, when we come forward, we're going to talk about The Little Mermaid and this box office splash, $95.5 million. And folks said they didn't want a black Little Mermaid. Hmm, go figure. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. Arriva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, this is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin, and I'm joined in this hour by Professor Larry Walker and Professor Tyrone Howard. All right. Uh, I said there wasn't much news going on in Florida, Professor Walker. I guess I spoke too soon because <laughs> your beloved governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, who now is a presidential candidate, is headed to Iowa and he's on the road now. And unlike when we had this conversation a couple of weeks ago when you know we were all wondering whether DeSantis was going to take any hits at Trump, seems like he has hit Trump over uh, definitely over his handling of COVID, said he turned over the entire country to Dr. Fauci, that he did not take control. And he's pointing to Florida as an example of how the pandemic should have been hap- uh, should have been handled. And he also hit him pretty hard on the uh, criminal reform bill that Donald Trump signed. You know, Jared, his, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, led him on that first steps a criminal reform bill. So DeSantis, I think, has a little bit more fighting in him and willingness to take on Trump than perhaps we thought. What do you think we're going to see over the next couple of months? Yeah, I'm not buying it. Uh, Donald Trump is a is an old school New York City uh, <laughs> slugger. Um, I don't agree with any of his policies, but, you know, how, you know, he's used to dealing with trade unions and <laughs> giving people money under under the table. I, listen, it's a, it's a different it is a different kind of world. Uh, and so, and we've seen it with Donald Trump. He's willing to slug it out. Now, most of the time, he's not telling the truth. Not most of the time, almost all the time, he's not telling the truth. But I think Governor DeSantis, he's showing a little bit of fight. But if we see anything from what happened, his announcement via Twitter, <laughs> I think that that's pretty much what we're going to see is hills and valleys. Um, now that he's headed to Iowa. Um, and listen, I, I, if you look at the polls, I don't think he, had, I don't really think he has any shot. Even if, if Trump continues to get in, you know, these indictments come through like we believe, I just don't think he can realistically beat Donald Trump because Donald Trump, obviously, people is obviously the name recognition. But just quite simply, I just don't think that uh, DeSantis, and we see it from a lot of write-ups, he has the, inter- he has the really the interpersonal pull to get people, to convince people to really vote for him. He just doesn't have it. Well, Professor Howard, are we making a mistake by just focusing on Trump and DeSantis? I just saw... Uh, article in the Wash Post that says there is a super PAC that is forming to support former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. And we also know there's Nikki Haley out there and there's Senator uh, Tim Scott. So should we be thinking about this crowded Republican, you know, pool and not just so focused on the two, what some are calling the front runners? No, we should, because they don't matter. And at the end of the day, poll after poll shows that that whether it be Nikki Haley or Chris Christie or Mike Pence or or Tim Scott, that they 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 rarely uh, they register a blip on the radar in terms of who folks are, are behind. This comes down to really not even not even uh, DeSantis. This is Trump's party, plain and simple. And let's call it what it is. 
And we know that if DeSantis wants to play this game, uh, he's going to lose and he's going to lose bad because Trump puts the capital G in gangsterism when it comes to politics. And he will get in the mud. He will get down and dirty. And I don't think DeSantis will ever know what has hit him when when Trump does what he does. Trump doesn't play by the rules. He doesn't abide by the sort of the etiquette of politics. Ask Ted Cruz, ask, ask Jeb Bush. Ask all the folks who were running back in, in, in 2016 how Trump plays by this game. And at the end of the day, he has shown that he has a massive following of people who almost have a cult-like following that no matter what he does, they still have his back. So I think this is all noise and much ado about, about nothing when it's all said and done. I think even with the indictments and all the other previous impeachments, that Trump is, is, is going to be the resumptive nominee of the Republican Party come 2024. So if it's that plain and simple, Professor Walker, look, Ron DeSantis is a lot of things, but dumb is not one of them. So he knows what's out there. He, you know, is this just about getting his name out there so he'll be ready four years from now, from this four years? Because of the sensible question to ask is why not wait? Why not do what Gavin Newsom is doing? Why not do what what, you know, the Dems that want to be president of the United States, but rather than take on Joe Biden, you know, they're, they're waiting for him to serve out his next four years. So why wouldn't DeSantis just wait as well? Where He would be the presumptive front runner, no doubt, if Trump, you know, loses, uh, which, you know, chances are he is going to lose and hopefully he will lose big. For Ariva, in political years, four years is a lifetime. You must be talking about 40 years. You you have to strike where the iron is hot. He clearly believes the iron is hot now. Um, and obviously, he's raised a, a, a lot, a substantial amount of money long before he even he even decided to announce he was going to run for, run for you know receive the Republican nomination and obviously try to run for president. But that's just that's just it. And politicians have egos. <laughs> so no matter the, no matter you know that Donald Trump was president for the four years and all the other crazy stuff he's done. Um, and listen, remember Donald Trump got over seventy million votes. So let's let's not let's not forget that. But the, the the when it comes to egos of politicians, they believe that they can win even when you know uh, things look dark. I remind people, and I'm not comparing them politically, but uh, remember a shot in a dark candidate by the name of Barack Obama, who was only a state senator, became a U.S. senator, and then became president of the United States. I can remember when President Obama now, when it was running against uh, former Congressman Bobby Rush and got crushed. So you you never you never know. You gotta you gotta you gotta go when when it's your time. He believes it's his time. Yeah, it's a big gamble though, because if he you know, obviously he could run again. You right. There are no rules that say if you lose this time out, you can't run again, which is what Chris Christie is doing. He lost big time. Uh but Chris Christie, I think, is interesting because he is that New York fighter uh that you talked about. He is willing, New Jersey, to get in the mud and he is willing to take Trump on, I think, in ways that some of these other candidates will not. And maybe it's because he knows he doesn't have a shot. So he has to make a lot of noise to get any attention. So I think we should watch him. I think his candidacy is going to be very interesting and colorful, if nothing else. I don't know how far he goes, but I think he's going to be that uh person who at least will call Trump out in ways that I don't see Nikki Haley, who's probably auditioning to be vice president. Uh, Tim Scott might be auditioning to be vice president. Those folks who want to have a career and could see themselves working with Donald Trump, I think are going to be very, very hesitant to challenge him. But Chris Christie, you know, there's probably so much bad, but they've been, you know, friend enemies now forever. So doubtful that he gets anywhere with Trump, uh, Trump administration uh, so I think he's the guy for us to watch. 
Uh, Elizabeth Holmes, real quickly before we do some additional news. Anybody shocked? This lady defrauds. I mean, millions and millions of people. She has on her board of directors some of the biggest names of corporate executives in this country. Not only is she going to jail for 11 years, she's been ordered to pay $452 million in restitution to the victims of her crimes. I'm just scratching my head trying to figure out how does a 19-year-old dropout from Stanford build a company with the kinds of names that she was able to attract, raise hundreds of millions of dollars, and it all be a fraud? Does that only happen in America, Professor Howard? Absolutely. This is this is the this is the the 2023 version of, of Bernie Madoff, right? Where if you can utilize the gift to gab, the power of persuasion, and and tell folks that you can get them something out of nothing, you'd be surprised how many folks will fall for a hook, line, and sinker. It's just a it's a mind-boggling story for those who aren't familiar with it. You got to take a look at it. That this young woman was able to uh, hoodwink and 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 bamboozle folks out of hundreds of millions of dollars in ways that uh, just kind of blow the mind. But in this moment, with the way in which we see technology works, social media works, uh, you can see people who can do some awful, awful things. And I'm just glad that justice is served on, on this particular front. Yeah, you're right. I mean, her claim to fame was that she could you could prick your finger, take a little bit of blood and diagnose all kinds of health conditions. And her and her lover, partner, he's also serving, I think, 13 years some of the stories that they would tell these investors, I guess I'm so puzzled, Professor Walker, not that they were criminals or not that they defrauded investors. People do that all the time. I guess I'm more shocked at the level of people that were involved in this company experience, you know, really what we thought think of reputable people and that they did not see that this was one big fraud. I think overall, kind of briefly, I think this is the power of white supremacy and presentation. <laughs> I just, you know, I gotta get me a black turtleneck. I think that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, it, you know, what is it saying? You fake it until you make it. So, so well, that's we, we usually can't fake up on hundreds of millions of dollars. Now we might be able to fake up when on you, a when you got a certain when you got a certain you got a certain complexion. Pyramid pyramid schemes seem to happen. Seemed to just happen, I don't know, like just randomly, I guess. You told me pretty made up, you know, these pyramid schemes happen every couple of years. So, and there, there are more of them out there right now. 19 years old, drop out from Stanford and now owes these victims. And that's not even all of what she defrauded victims out of. But the judge, you know, kudos to this judge for ordering her to pay this $452 million in restitution. When we come forward, the little mermaid makes box office history. Uh, with a black mermaid of all things. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, Disney is laughing all the way to the bank with its $95.5 million, which is the box office numbers uh, from this weekend and its debut of The Little Mermaid. I'm just reading some of the responses as to why The Little Mermaid could not be Black. Claims such as she lived, mermaids live under the sea and therefore would not have dark skin. 
the Little Mermaid is a Danish story, therefore Ariel should be white. Mermaids are a European mythological figure and therefore Ariel should be white. Making Ariel black is ruining childhoods and changing the character. The list goes on and on and on. Mermaids live under the sea and skin can't be dark. <laughs> no, somebody really said that. Okay, I, I don't even know where we start. First of all, congratulations to the cast. I love, uh, you know, Melissa McCarthy. I, I love uh, Hallie Bailey. Fantastic job. The public responded very positively to this casting. Why, Professor Howard, is it driving folks to insanity and coming up with stupid arguments like mermaids live underwater so their skin can't be dark? A yeah, little we, kids' movie is causing people to lose grown people to lose their minds. Yeah, here we go again. This is this is yet the recent and most most uh, an, another apparent manifestation of white supremacy. And not just white supremacy, but let's go deeper on this, Ariba. This is about anti-blackness, anti-black womanness, right? That we just can't fathom the thought of seeing black women, black girls lifted up, affirmed, seen in, 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 in through the lens of beauty and imagination. And let's be clear, as you mentioned at the outset, if you look at the work of Jalandra Davis, she's talked about the fact that black mermaids, there is a long history in African cosmology and in mythology that says that for those ancestors who jumped off of those ships and boats during the Atlantic slave trade, that there is belief that they became black mermaids. This is nothing new in the, in the ways in which black folks have seen black mythology. But the idea that black women and black girls can be lifted up and affirmed in this way is how this is manifesting. I'll, I'll say one more thing on this. I have a seven-month-old granddaughter, and to me, there's nothing more powerful than for her to see a black mermaid, someone who looks like her, has her skin tone, has her beauty. The ways in which black girls and black women need to be affirmed is just so important. And so kudos to Disney for doing the right thing and standing up to all the racism. But I also hope and wish that Disney would invest some of the money they made off black folks into programs for black girls and black women across this country. Well, I'm sitting here scratching my head thinking this is why when we take black history and the work of Dr. Davis that you just described, nobody will ever know it unless you're in a university setting and not even all universities, because that is the kind of history that is being erased from our curriculum. So we are left with the ignorance, you know, and it's not just white folks, black folks themselves, ourselves, not themselves. I'm one of them. Ourselves won't learn that either. That's what's so scary, Professor Walker. So somebody literally, because white supremacy narrative, you know, that's we're inculcated with it as well. It becomes a part of our culture, black folks. And people think when you say white supremacists, you have to be white. No, white supremacy narratives are taught to us as black people. We internalize them and we live them out in many ways as well. So you even hearing hear black people say, well, mermaids can't be black. Oh, it's exhausting. <laughs> Professor Walker. Yeah. Like it, it's crazy. It would be even crazy if you reminded people that life began in Africa, right? <laughs> so, I mean, what are we really talking about here? If, if, if mermaids are real, guess where they would come from? They would have came from the continent. So, I mean, but, you know, we, we don't have that kind of rational thinking. We certainly don't have the kind of store. We are teaching. We, kids aren't being taught. No one's being taught that, like, that, that, that Homo sapiens came out of Africa in the first place. So that's a whole, that'd be a whole nother controversial issue. But you're right. This idea about mermaids not being able to be black, 
particularly considering when the crab has a Caribbean accent, <laughs> right? That's a telltale sign right there, right? You see, you know, what, what are the, he's from one of the Caribbean islands. So where is Ariel from? More than likely she's from one of the, or she has ancestors from the Caribbean islands. So where a lot of black folks are. So this idea, once again, that Professor Howard talked about, if it's not centered in whiteness, and that's why we see these attacks against CRT and DEI, if it's not centered in the experience of individuals who have been the focal point of this country for generations, this is what we get. We get these outrageous conversations about fictitious characters that swim in the water all the time, can't be black. And I guess I wonder, Professor, if you just believe that this is pure fiction, that this is a fairy tale, it's a made-up story, how do we even get to what the race of the person should be in any instance? Because if you make up the story, you get to make the person whatever color you want to be. The mermaid could be a man. What The mermaid doesn't even have to be a woman, right? Could the mermaid be a little boy? White supremacy takes no days off, Abriva. We know this, right? <laughs> so it's not, we. you can't even imagine. You cannot even begin to do what folks in Afrofuturism talk about to begin to think critically about a different reality. Look, and let's be frank about this. We know for years, white supremacy and, and these different film production companies, they changed the African narrative. Look at Cleopatra. They changed her from black to white. Look at all, look at, look at Moses. They changed him from black to white, right? So the idea that whiteness has to always be centered, as Professor Walker just mentioned, and that anything that even sort of ventures off that is problematic, especially if it's black, that that is the antithesis of what whiteness permeates all the time. And so therefore, that's why you see the massive backlash. But kudos to folks who went out and supported this and lifted this up, because again, representation matters for black girls. Yeah, it matters and money. Obviously, these box office uh, halls over the weekend, these big weekends, Memorial Day weekend, uh, they matter. So hopefully, uh, Professor Walker, Disney looks at these numbers and say, look, we can weather these little Twitter storms, these hashtags, you know, this trending hashtag, not my Ariel was trending for a while. Uh, Ariel is white, is was trending. But folks, when I, I think when the, when this happens, I don't know, we have to, we haven't seen the demographics in terms of who went to see the movie, but hopefully it was largely supported by black folks and studios get the message is that when you cast us in movies like this, we will come out, whether it's Wakanda forever or whether it is a story about a fictional mermaid that black folks, we go to movies, we spend money on movies. I mean, that's been proven by Dr. Hunt's uh, diversity report that he does every year out of UCLA. Those numbers matter. And I think this is a manifestation of those numbers. And if you probably would talk to the, uh, you know, the executives at Disney, they would tell you capitalism matters. <laughs> Listen, Disney is always a little bit in the last 20 years or so, a little bit ahead of the trend because they know the racial ethnic uh, demographics in this country have shifted dramatically. 2042, we're going to be a majority minority nation. Mm -hmm. They're focused on building their clientele, that system of individuals who will continue to buy their products, take them to Disneyland, Disney World, buy T-shirts, not for this generation, but for the next generation. And that is true capitalism at its best. <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to switch gears real quickly in the last couple of minutes. Let's talk about Uganda, Professor Howard. Mm. You know, it seems like we're fighting everything, right? So we're talking about anti-Blackness. Now you have this country enacting a law that is the, the ultimate anti-LGBT, you know, Q law that says you can be in prison for life and you mm -hmm. can be actually killed for engaging in a sex act with someone of the same gender. I mean, how is that happening in 2023? Yeah, look, 
systems of oppression manifest in different ways. And, and this is just downright just horrific when you look at what we're talking about. Folks who can be punished by death for what they call uh, intense or aggressive acts of homosexuality. Uh, look, folks, the bottom line is this. When you have any kind of sort of narrative that sort of demonizes a group of people, even if they are Black folk, Black folk are not uh, immune to some of these ideologies that exist that causes intense and, and, and persistent harm to folks. Uh, I, I, my heart goes out to, to the folks in Uganda uh, if they're members of the LGBTQ plus community because their very well-being is, is, is in question, not just by the legislative acts, but also by the ways in which uh, sort of the, the physical and, and even mental violence that they will incur because of this legislation uh, is just downright, downright tragic. Yeah, LGBTQ community is under attack seemingly, and particularly the trans community all over this world. So, you know, we'll watch very closely what happens with that in our last couple of minutes. Okay, I'm going to get way out of my lane, Professor Walker, and ask you, are you a Heat, Miami Heat, or a Denver Nuggets fan? Not that I'm either, <laughs> but, but so, I can read, so I guess I think I do know what happened. <laughs> yeah, so I did watch the game, but let me be clear. I'm a Sixers fan. I'm, I'm Philly sports, so, it, it you know, I always like to see Boston lose because they're a big, biggest rivalry. But, um, you know, I'm, I didn't want to see – if I could have Boston and Miami lose, I would have been happy with that. But, right. um, it, was, but so it was a great you, blowout. Who, who, you, who you think is going to take it? I think Denver wins, I think Denver wins the game wins, uh, in six games. What do you think, Professor Howard? Who's your, who do you have your money on? Nuggets and six, even though I'm a lifelong suffering Clippers fan, I'm going to go with the West. Denver and six. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll be, I'll have you guys back. We'll know, you know, I guess in a, several days, a couple of days, a week or so, what happens with this big uh, NBA championship. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure to see both of you be well, my friends. All right. In hour two, I'm talking to some parents who took their fight for social justice all the way to the United Nations today. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. Mysteries, true crime, and more. Audible is the home of storytelling, audiobooks, podcasts, and originals. Sign up for a free trial at audible.com. This is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. The Denver Nuggets are eight and a half point favorites over the Miami Heat in game one of the NBA Finals. Game one is Thursday night in Denver, 5.30 tip-off on ABC. By the time Thursday comes around, the Nuggets will have had 10 days off since sweeping the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals. The well-rested Nuggets will also have the best player in the playoffs to throw at the Heat. Senator Nikola Jokic is averaging a triple-double in the playoffs, 29.9 points, 13.3 rebounds, and 10.3 assists. The Heat are the next team in line with the task of coming up with a game plan for Jokic. The Heat are also trying to become the first number eight seed to win the NBA title. The New York Knicks were an eight seed in 1999, but were swept by San Antonio. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. More news, opinions, and conversation when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA Talk 1580 is pleased to partner with the Empowerment Congress, the Gathering Spot, the Institute for Nonviolence, and Days of Dialogue for a Juneteenth program called State of the Freed to educate fellow citizens about the significance of the holiday and efforts around reparations for descendants of slaves living in California. Program participants include California Reparations Task Force member Assemblyman Reginald Jones Sawyer and State Senator Steve Bradford, along with KBLA's own Dominique Duprima, Ariva Martin, Tavis Smiley, and many more. It all 
happens Saturday, June 10th, and you could be selected to attend this special invitation-only Juneteenth event along with Dominique, Ariba, and Tavis. All you have to do is go to the KBLA 1580 website, click on the Juneteenth State of the Freed icon on the homepage, and register to win entrance into this empowering affair. Or you can watch the live stream of this special Juneteenth event by going to www.empowermentcongress.org slash Juneteenth. But head to the KBLA 1580 website right now for your chance to join us live on site Saturday, June 10th for the State of the Freed. This is a Juneteenth community call to action from KBLA Talk 1580. We've got your black. I feel like Testimony began today in the Pittsburgh Synagogue Massacre Trial. The 2018 shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue left 11 people dead and two others injured. It was the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history. Jury selection took over four weeks. A 50-year-old white man is facing 63 hate crimes and gun-related charges. The House was back in session today to start the process of voting on the bill Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden hashed out over the weekend to raise the debt ceiling and cut spending. Now, House GOP leaders are searching for the 218 votes needed to pass the deal. The deal is a long way from the $4 trillion in deficit reductions House Republicans included in their own bill to lift the debt limit, which cleared the House last month, but cannot pass the Senate. Hard right Republicans say the deal is a no-go, despite McCarthy's promise to the nation and Joe Biden that he can get the votes needed. Uganda imposed the death penalty for some same-sex activity. An anti-LGBTQ plus bill was signed into law yesterday. Anyone found to have had sex with a person of the same gender faces life in prison or, in some cases, death. Russia's capital city was hit by a drone strike this morning. Attacks deep inside Russia territory are rare. Two residential buildings were damaged in Moscow. However, no serious injuries were reported. And in the Ukraine, Russia launched its third air attack in 24 hours on the capital of Kiev. At least one person was killed and at least four were wounded. Well, the Miami Heat will face the Denver Nuggets in the NBA Finals. The Heat defeated the Celtics 103-84 in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. Miami thwarted Boston's comeback bid after the Celtics lost the first three games of the series. The Nuggets will host Game 1 of the NBA Finals on Thursday night. Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis will make competing trips to Iowa this week beginning with DeSantis on Tuesday kicking off his first swing after officially announcing his candidacy last week. And Donald Trump will arrive on Wednesday and appear at a breakfast meeting of conservative activists in Urbandale early Thursday morning. Now, recent history has shown an Iowa win is far from determinative. The last GOP winners in caucuses without an incumbent did not go on to be the party's nominee. And Trump himself overcame a narrow loss in 2016 to win the nomination and the presidency. Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Blood Lab Theranos, who became the face of Silicon Valley duplicity after her company collapsed amid fraud claims, reported to a minimum security prison today to begin her sentence of more than 11 years. She was found guilty last January of four counts of wire fraud. 
Her conviction was the culmination of a saga that began in 2003 when she dropped out of Stanford University at age 19 to start a company whose technology she claimed could diagnose a multitude of conditions with just a pinprick of blood. In another ruling issued last week, U.S. District Judge Edward DeVilla ordered Holmes to pay $452 million in restitution to the victims of her crimes. The Little Mermaid makes box office splash with $95.5 million in its opening weekend. Disney estimate the film starring Halle Bailey as the mermaid and Melissa McCarthy as her sea witch nemesis Ursula will reach $117.5 million by the time the holiday is over. It ranks as the fifth biggest Memorial Day weekend opening ever. You are listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is the second hour of Ariva Martin in real time. And in this hour, I go deep on a topic that folks are talking about. And in this hour, it's about civil rights and social justice. I'm talking to parents or parent leaders who took their fight for social justice all the way to the United Nations today. They are in New York City, and they are part of the second session of the Permanent Forum on People of African Descent. These leaders from the National Parents Union will join me in this hour to talk about the issues they are discussing while at this forum and why it's so important to bring issues about social justice and civil rights to the United Nations. Kalia Pringle, Minnesota State Director of the National Parents Union, and Bernita Bradley, the National Parents Union Director of Parents Voice of the Parents Voice will join me uh, when we come forward. We'll talk about what these parents' experience was like before the United Nations. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time. I'm on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back, and this is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time. And in this hour, I go deep on stories that people are talking about. And today I'm joined by leaders from the National Parents Union. They are in New York City testifying at the United Nations today as part of the second session of the Permanent Forum on People of African Descent. They are talking to the UN about their experiences on the school to prison pipeline, policing in schools, the inequity gap, and other topics that impact children and families of color. I welcome Kalia Pringle. She's the Minnesota State Director for the National Parents Union, and Bernita Bradley, also with the National Parents Union. Uh, thanks to both of you women. I know you are. Uh, both managing a very busy schedule. You're at this big forum that's being held in New York City uh, at the United Nations. And in fact, you told me you, you both just ran over from meetings at the UN in order to uh, come onto this program. So I'm very grateful. I uh, know how busy it is when you are at the UN. I've had the privilege myself of uh, appearing and testifying at a hearing at the UN. So I'll start with you, Bernita. Why is the National Parents Union at the UN talking about issues that impact 
uh, predominantly schools and families and children, students in the U.S.? Yeah, so um, first, thank you for having us on your show. Um, I'll say the main reason that we're there is because we advocate for families and uh, students all over the country and not just um, advocate for them, but with them and alongside them. And one of the things we never want anything to be doing is uh, work about our people without us in the room. Um, We really found out that there was low representation from the United States over the last 10 years. So we really just wanted to be there to make sure that our voices were heard. And when we were invited, you know, we brought out our team of beautiful people um, who do this work in all different communities across the country and represent different types of people. Like from the Black Wall Street time, we had Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah Franks. We have Sharif Elmecki, who's part of the Black Male Educators um, Association and, um, Myself, Kulia, right? Uh, Tafshir Crosby, who does organizing across the country. And it's, it, we're like working with communities that are boots on the ground, like from everybody from literally a mom in her living room organizing families to large legislators that we're, that we're pushing back. You were talking about McCarthy earlier, right? Like we've been talking about this, the debt ceiling and all of that. We work on all of those issues around black families and African descent children. And it was only right that we be in that space. And we're honored to have been invited there. So Akulia, the permanent forum on people of African descent, can you give us a kind of a, a brief summary of what is that? Um, from what I could tell, it this is the only the second um, convening of the forum. The first convening was in 2001 in Durban, South Africa. And so it's been 20 years. And so um, I will say there has been some critical um, things about the forum because it's been 20 years since it's convened. Um, but it's countries, uh, Black people from the diaspora, from the motherland, all the way from the Caribbean, the United States, um, European countries, as well as there are some member organizations that were from European countries that weren't Black, such as the European Union, um, Spain, um, Saudi Arabia, Mexico. Um, Those countries all spoke on the need for the theme today, which rang loud and clear, was reparations. Mm. And so reparations, was there a focus in terms of U.S. reparations? Or again, was this uh, the concept of, of reparations around the globe? Reparations when it comes to enslavement of African people, the transatlantic slavery in the United States, South America and the Caribbean, reparations for colonization around the globe. Um, Yeah, reparations in general. And has the the National Parents Union, Bernita, have you all taken a position on reparations? Yeah, so most most, um, definitely we think that brown and black families across this country should be um, compensated most importantly through um, educational compensation. Like, what are we doing to educate our most marginalized communities? Uh, we believe that there should be a fundamental right for a high quality education. It should be a civic right, like that nobody, no child in this country should be reading, you know, below their grade level. And, com- and uh, schools are just like happy with it, right? Like, they're just able to go on and just say, oh, well, 
we felt that when we'll try next time, right? Like, and uh, Kulia has been working on a campaign. I'd love for her to, you know, share a little bit about that because we're not just like spitting what we want. We're actually out there streets, in the streets fighting for it. Yeah, I'd so love to hear, uh, Kulia, more about what the National Parents Union is doing around the issue of reparations. I mean, it's all from California to Detroit, uh, to Kansas City, Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, uh, some cities are just enacting legislation or, or laws to form committees to study the racial policies that have impacted people of color in their city. California obviously has this task force that's been meeting for two years that's about to publish its recommendations. San Francisco has already issued recommendations. So, so what has the National Parents Union been doing on this issue? So I serve, St. Paul um, is actually the second or third city in the United States to actually pass a reparations law, which is called the St. Paul Recovery Act. And so I served on the Temporary Legislative Advisory Council, and I also applied to be on the Permanent Advisory Council. Um, so we set parameters around what um, reparations will look like for St. Paul families who are descendants of shadow slavery. And we clearly stated nothing is off the table, including cutting the check. And what, where are you guys? Like I said, California is at the stage where in June, end of this month or June, which is in two days, uh, will be issuing its report. And we already know that the California plan will include checks to certain individuals. It's going to address housing. It's going to address health care. It's going to address education. Uh, where are you in the process in terms of St. Paul's? Are you all at the beginning stages, the middle stages? Oh, no. Like I said, the, the, the St. Paul Recovery Act was already passed. That was a bill to say that folks in St. Paul, Black descendants of shadow slavery, will receive. Um, so there was already a study done over um, a five-year period. St. Paul City Council passed the bill and in, in, um, enacted it. Then they. Um, recruited a temporary advisory council because our city council has the, the council has to be appointed by the mayor. So we were the temporary advisory council, which set the parameters of what reparations would look like, which was housing. It was to touch on every city council department, housing, education, um, economics, every single thing, including cutting the check. And so right now in the next week or two, they're going to be naming the permanent council, which I okay. hope to be a part of. Um, and then that, that council will the decide what the council then will decide what the form of reparations looks what like. What the form of reparations will look like. We set the parameters, and they will go into detail. Okay. And have has St. Paul set any financial limit? Have they said we're going to spend five million, ten million? Nope. Um, we pretty much said that COVID money is on the table. All money is on the table um, when it comes to reparations. So we didn't set a limit. Other than this council will decide what reparations will look like. Wow, that's impressive. So in presenting that to the U.N., did, were you able to present what St. Paul has done to the U.N.? Um, I speak tomorrow, but my focus isn't on reparations. Um, again, the theme for the day um, and Bernita didn't focus on reparations either. We focused in on education and the disparities that are happening with black children. And so that's what I'll be focusing on is literacy um, the school to prison pipeline, read or die um, for black children. Um, it's literally read or die because of disparities in housing and all the other things. That's what you know what I mean? Reparations is something that's needed. 
But the disparities that exist for Black people, I don't care where you go. Um, for me, yeah. it all starts in the school dish, in the school, because that's one of the first. Well, healthcare it is the first institution that we hit when we start to see the disparities at birth. But our kids start fourth grade and that and by fourth grade, um, when kids are no longer able to read to uh, read to are learning to read, they're reading to learn and they begin to be adultified, especially black boys. Um, that's when we start to see diagnosis of emotional behavior disorder because they suffer from instructional damage. And so um, that's one of the campaigns that I've led as far as literacy goals. And that's what I'll be speaking on. Bernita, so when you think about schools, I mean, so much is happening. States like Florida, states like Texas, where books are being banned in schools, yeah. where uh, certain types of instruction, particularly instruction that has to do with Black history is being banned. What is the national... Uh, parents union doing across this country to fight back on these uh, policies that are being enacted that are really going to make it difficult for black, brown, white, any kind of child to have a clear, uh, accurate history of this country. Yeah. So one thing we did was fight against the parent bill of rights that was that was presented by the GOP a, uh, a couple of months ago, because that parent bill of rights, first of all, was not created by most of the parents in America are polling that we've been doing monthly for the last three years has clearly stated what parents' priorities are. It's making sure our schools are safe and caring. It's making sure that our children have social emotional support, that bullying doesn't happen, that that uh, our children are reading, like Kulia said, right? And then that we have a fundamental right for a high quality education in Detroit. We just got a basic right for education in 2020. A lot of people don't know that. Like literally the one of the hot cities in the country just got a basic right. So we've been rallying around all of that. To what does that mean when you say you have a basic right to education? Yeah. So we just um, Gary B versus uh, it was Gary B versus Snyder. But then it turned out to be Gary B versus um, Whitmer where four young boys sued the Department of Education in Michigan because they said, you did not prepare us for life. You did not prepare us for, uh, most definitely not post-secondary education. You did not prepare us and we know it and it shows and how we're living in poverty and everything else going on in our life. Like Kalia said, it the, the basis really is education. Like our, our government is no better than the education we give our most marginalized communities. And at the end of the day, we, with all the book banning and all of that, we are literally no better off than when it was illegal for us to read and write. So let me ask you this. So this law that passed, well, this lawsuit that was filed in because of the Detroit public schools, I assume the plaintiffs won the lawsuit. Now, what does that school district have to do differently? So that so that's what we're fighting. Right. Because they they had all these asks in the in the law that was passed, but we didn't get everything right. So now we're fighting for that accountability to happen. Uh, you don't just get to pass off these little bland bills and laws that say, oh, well, if you read a lot of legislation, it has the we suggest words in it or or we you know, recommend, but it has no accountability for schools to actually show up and produce for young people and make sure they are on task. That's what Kalia has been doing, right? Like Kalia has been rewording this to make sure it says, oh, no, no, no. We're not just talking about the right to read act. We're talking about the right to read and to make sure that you are accountable if they don't read and what you have to produce 
what you have to show us as parents what you're going to do to make sure our children are reading and writing. So, Kalia, you know, I, I get really frustrated because so much of the news, when you think about what's happening in schools, you'll hear a single parent uh, objects to the showing of, you know, the movie Ruby Bridges to right. school kids or a parent objects to a movie that has a, a LGBTQ character in it or certain parents are objecting to certain books that are in school and you get the impression that this is widespread the way parents across this nation are thinking about education but really it's often a very very small but yet vocal group of parents who have the microphone and we don't tend to hear from the parents that are pushing back on these policies. How do we make sure those voices are heard? Well, I think, you know, appearing on shows like yours is giving us the opportunity to get the word out. I think Bernita sort of hinted on it earlier when DeSantis sort of came out with the Parent Bill of Rights. It was a small group of parents, particularly the Moms of Liberty crew, um, clicked up, you know, and got him to write this bill. But we descended on his office. His little small office was about 100 black and brown parents. No, Of course, as you said, nobody covered it. Um, we had to have our own press conference on that. Um, but we descended on his office and, you know, light a fire under his aide's butt, you know, to let him know, like, y'all didn't ask us. We, the parents, you know what I mean? Y'all didn't ask us. But I, I think it's, I don't, I the reason why I think National Parents Union was founded um, and the reason why we do this work is because parents, don't, especially marginalized parents, don't realize their true power. You got folks that are coming in new countries. They're, you know, they're scared to speak because they're used to dealing with totalitarian regimes and it's not cool to speak up against, you know, authority. So parents don't recognize their power. And what we've been trying to do is letting parents know, like, you hold the keys. You hold the keys and all you have to do is speak on it. And when you speak on it, things will come. We have been advocating for the last five years in Minnesota. And I am so happy to say the governor of our state signed about six bills um, due to parent power that that's going to increase banning on suspensions for kindergarten to third graders, stop using uh, recess as a disciplinary tool, banning on seclusions in schools, the Literacy Act. Um, increasing cross subsidies in special education and EL like that is due to parent power. Yeah. And, and I'm glad to hear that. And like I said, sometimes I get frustrated because it seems like those narrow voices, those, those voices of parents who want to take this country back to a different era, those parents who are concerned about the teaching of black history or any kind of history that they say makes white children uncomfortable. It seems like they're winning. And it seems like they have the, the biggest voice and we will hear about legislation like the legislation you just identified being passed in this uh, Florida. But rarely do we hear about the bills passed in Minnesota, the ones you just described yeah. that really speak to marginalized parents and really try to address some of the systemic racism that we see in our educational setting. Uh, when we come forward, I want to talk about what you both hope and what the National Parents Union hope. Uh, to accomplish by taking this fight, this fight uh, for justice in our school districts, this fight for equity in our school district, all the way to the United Nations. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward.
You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back. And in this hour, I'm joined by Kulia Pringle. She's the Minnesota State Director for the National Parents Union and Bernita Bradley. She's also a representative of the National Parents Union. And they are in New York City today at a conference sponsored by the United Nations. A conference is looking at the, it's called the Permanent Forum on People of African Descent. The last time this uh, forum met was 20 years ago. These two national parents union leaders are at this conference talking about the systemic racism and inequities that our schools suffer from in the U.S. and how it's impacting marginalized students. I know, Kalia, you are scheduled to speak before the U.N. tomorrow and give your presentation uh, on the state of education in the U.S., uh, just, I want to ask you, though, about what you observed today. I know today was about reparations. I assume, though, you had an opportunity to uh, you know, talk to folks who were at this conference. What's the vibe? What's the sense about why uh, this kind of convening is so important in this moment? Um, the vibe is, is that you could tell that it, it wasn't just about reparations. That was one of the things. But you could tell the vibe was Black people across the globe is looking for the United Nations to do more than put things from pen to paper. We're looking for action. We're looking for resources, money in particular. Like we are looking for something tangible. Like we get tired of people, you know, talking a good talk. You created a forum and it's nice to have some policies that looks good on paper. But what has happened in the last 20 years since this forum was created and what's going to happen in the next 20 years um, now that we've had the second forum. So that was what I, that was the vibe I got. Black people across the world, we want, we want accountability. No, I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my next question, which is what are you hoping to get out of this, Bernita? So Kalia talked about money. She talked about something beyond just hosting a forum. We know lots of folks have big conferences and people fly in from all over the world a lot of fancy parties oftentimes, lots of good entertainment, and then people go home and nothing. And there's a sense of frustration that, you know, it's performative in, in many ways. But what are you hoping is different about this gathering, this convening at the United Nations? Um, it's, it's a call to action to the whole entire world. So to see uh, world leaders from across the globe come together in unity saying one thing right like they literally no matter what points they made whether it's reparations education whether it was um systemic you know poverty whatever it might have been literally everybody was saying this has to be taken care of and we're the ones to do it like right like call out more parents call out more community members and most importantly importantly call on our local and national government to to make this right like it is their obligation to pay back what they've taken and rightfully stolen from people and to make the future better for our young people right um it was wonderful to see the men stand up the women stand up, the seniors stand up and just speak so boldly and just talk about what was going on in their individual co countries. What was a little disheartening was the fact that it's going on everywhere for people of African descent, right? Like it's not just an American thing. And so that's the reason why these conveniences need to happen. So with them having met for the last 10 years, they're calling for an additional 10 years to literally come together and say, no, like this can't, like Kalia said, this 
This can't be something that we just met. You know, we had a beautiful meeting and now we're going to put this on as a white paper. No, it's time to implement what they've talked about they want to do and make it a priority that these countries pay back what they owe children of African descent. And it's time for us to decide what that looks like, not people in these ivory towers, in these rooms, siloed by themselves. It's for the people to say how we want this paid back and when we want it paid back and to whom. So, Kalia, I, I hear what Bernita is saying, and that's a powerful message. And obviously a powerful gathering is happening at the United Nations in New York City. But I, I can't help but be reminded about where we are in this country, in the U.S. Uh, you know, the reckoning that we had around race that happened after George Floyd's murder. Now we're, well, the third anniversary of George Floyd's murder was just a couple of days ago. And when I talk to a lot of folks, they say, look, that progress that we saw right after George Floyd's uh, murder in many ways has been eviscerated. There's been uh, the erasure of a lot of that progress and even the language, even the rhetoric, even people's willingness to have conversations about systemic racism has changed. You have elected officials like Ron DeSantis saying talking about race is in and of itself divisive. He's saying we don't need to, to teach some of these topics. We don't need kids reading some of these books because these topics are dividing the nation, not bringing the nation together. So I'm just scratching my head, you know, trying to figure out how do we move forward uh, even though it's the right thing to do, it's, it's uh, imperative in many ways. But the reality is we have uh, 70 million people that voted for Donald Trump. And chances are, if he's the nominee, 70 million more will vote for him again. So how do we overcome what some have said, what some would call the regression that we have seen uh, over the last year and a half since that national reckoning on race that we started after George Floyd's murder? Yeah, I think Bernita um, sort of uh, downplayed her own testimony when it came to the call of action. She literally told other nations, like, when the United States is speaking to you about your issues and your racism, remind them about their systemic racism and their history of racism and their inequities and the disparities that plague Black, Brown, and Indigenous folks in this country. That is the responsibility of the other nations. And like you said, I live in a state where George, the uprising happened, and white people were so, you know, oh, we, you know, people, money was coming in. It was coming in. Everybody was willing to 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 talk, and now everybody's gone back to. I guess woke has become like a a, a disease or something. Not even liberals want to touch it. Don't nobody want to be woke no more. Everybody <laughs> want to go back to sleep and and you know say night night. Um, but for me, it's gonna take. You know, I think about Malcolm X, I think about the Black Panthers. They didn't have social media, but they were able to do their real deep organizing of folks that were the most marginalized, not the bourgeoisie of the Black people, but the most marginalized, the ones that were most oppressed. And it's going to take that group of people to really realize that they, that y'all can't be complacent. You can't be sitting by and watching DeSantis and watching Trump and, oh, well, you know, that's white folks and that's this and that. You know what I mean? We are going to have to hit the streets hard and do that real grassroots organizing. We put three Minneapolis public school board parents on the Minneapolis public school boards without any endorsement from any special interest group. Not the DFL wouldn't support these these ladies, but they hit the hard 
running and they were able to get nominated and get elected to the school board. And we can't look to the DFL. We can't look to nobody. We got to look to the people. And, and if we look to the people and try to convince the people, like we cannot continue to just sit and waddle in this thing that's happening. Like we're literally going to be going back. And do you want your children to be living in that? How is the National Parents Union, uh, Bernita, bringing non-African-American families into this conversation and into this movement? Because a lot of what we're hearing, again, from these very loud and very vocal parents who dominate some of these school board meetings is that, you know, talk about race, talk about systemic racism, talk about chattel slavery, all of that they say is harmful to their children. It makes their children uncomfortable. You know, it's it's impacting their emotional and their mental well-being. How are you all as a parents union that's predominantly working with black parents or marginalized parents, how are you bringing white parents into this conversation and getting them to be allies in this movement? Yeah, so two things. We work with more than just black families. We literally, our leader is, our, the leader is Carrie Rodriguez, right? She's, she's Latin. We have white team members. We have everybody from Spanish to Jewish to whatever, right? Whoever wants to work with us, we've supported all type of families. We not only support them, we train families. Like once you've been activated, I call it activated. Like once something has hurt you, you are now activated. You're not activated just to solve this for your child. You activated to solve. Once we work with you, we want you working for the children that's in your community and all the other children that come along. Like the steps that we teach people, Tafshir Crosby is our is our organizing, um, senior director of organizing. And literally when she teaches a group or rather a parent, a group or a whole state of organizers, she's teaching them that we have to pay it forward because it's only a few of us, right? Like, but we got to create this whole cycle of people that when we leave you, you are ready to do this work, no matter whether you're white, black, Hispanic, no matter what. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And actually I interviewed Carrie Rodriguez some uh, months ago in this program. So I know who she is, but let's be real. When we talk about marginalized families and children, that's really a proxy for black and brown folks. <laughs> And not to say that they're not white people in your movement, but it is predominantly the white families who are going to these school board meetings demanding that these books, yeah. whether it's Toni Morrison or, you know, these get, we're movie, right there. Bridges movie that's, that they're demanding the removal of these items from the classrooms. They're saying these this conversation about racism is harmful to their children. Uh, hope that thought when we come forward, I want to continue this conversation because I do think we have to acknowledge that there is some division even within parent groups. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. This is Ariva Martin in real time. and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. And in this second hour, I've been talking with members of the National Parent Union. They're actually leaders in the organization and talking about this divide that we see in states like Florida and Texas and really all over the country. And maybe it's division around socioeconomic, but it, it presents itself as racial division when we see white parents in particular uh, pushing back 
on curriculum about Black history, pushing back on issues uh, being taught in the classroom around systemic racism. Uh, and I know that the National Parent Union doesn't discriminate. It's an organization that includes all parents, all races, all ethnicities. But Kalia, let's talk about these racial divides that we are seeing in local school board meetings. We see it in local school districts. How is the National Parent Union addressing these divides? Well, one thing, like you, you said it earlier, it's a small percentage of parents. And when we do parent polling, it states that parents aren't thinking about book bans and those things. They want their kids to read and they want their kids to have social and emotional learning. They want their kids to have mental health support. And you asked the question earlier about how do we connect with white um, parents? Um, one thing I've learned in Minnesota is I have, um, well, connected with the parent organizations, the white parent organizations that are already organized will be the special education community. Those white parents are very organized and are, have been getting laws passed for their children for many years and the dyslexia community. Dyslexia is not something that the black community knows because white parents have money to go and get their kids diagnosed and assessed and be able to get private tutoring for their kids. The black community is not able to do that so they suffer from instructional damage. But you talk to those white parents and you get them to see those disparities, then they become allies of your of your cause. And they've been my allies in Minnesota when it comes to literacy and suspensions. Um, and I don't get sidetracked by those small percentage of parents because one thing we're very clear on is that we're currently not getting taught about ourselves in the curriculum. So I'm not going to sit there and argue with you about trying to get a book ban when I'm trying to increase the cultural responsiveness of the curriculum, when I'm trying to increase the teacher diversity population, when I'm trying to just make sure that black kids are leaving third grade literate with structured literacy curriculum and teachers knowing or having the knowledge of how to teach kids how to read. I'm not finna get sidetracked and I tell parents don't get sidetracked, but that's not to say we ain't talking about right now descending on Florida and other states and creating a plan on how we're going to organize those parents and get them to realize y'all can't be sitting back and letting these small group of parents, one or two, suck the oxygen out the air. Y'all are going to have to say something because you went outnumber more than them. The problem is, is they don't outnumber us. We're just un or out, un out organized and no, you're right. You are right. The the group is small, but sometimes a group that is small can appear to be much larger than it is, and it can yeah. uh, punch above its weight. And so far, though, that small group of parents has been punch punching above its weight in certain states. And, and again, I don't want to generalize this across the country. Obviously, it's, you know, states like yours, Minnesota, you just talked about those incredible bills that were signed into law by your governor, but definitely big states like Florida and Texas, we've got to figure out how to, as you said, engage those parents and, uh, you know, help those parents realize that they have more power than they know. I want to ask you, Bernita, though, about accountability. You talked a lot and Kalia gave you uh, high remarks for your comments to the UN today. How will the National Parents Union hold those leaders who are participating in this UN forum today? How will you hold them accountable? Yeah, two two things. We 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 have a campaign called Every Family Votes, and we have an Epic campaign. Epic is ev everyday parents impacting change, and so one of the things we do is train those parents who want to go to school boards on how to organize in their own community based around their own needs, show up at school boards. They push back on those school boards, whether it's about curriculum, whether it's about the local play playground, book banning and everything. They meet, like Kulia said, with some of the white constituents. 
some of those meetings don't turn out well. Like we met with the young lady from Moms from Liberty when we were rallying in D.C. We take groups of families to all type of rallies. Uh, March, March for our lives. We're there showing up in 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 conjunction with them. Right. But then. If you, if you don't agree with us, we're not going to waste a lot of time sitting in those rooms with you. But we are going to push back at those board meetings and we're going to continue to train more families. We're going to continue to train more parents to vote. Right. Because that's what's going to really count is when those Florida and those Texas families, the ones who need to be voting to vote DeSantis out of there and to make sure that things don't happen in Florida. I mean, excuse me, in Texas, that real this larger group don't want to happen um we met at the at, um one of the isds in houston and met a whole lot of families who were doing the book ban and what lgtbq issues and we're like yeah let, let you talk to the real parents so we organized with those families to come in and tell your story right it's all about telling your story because everybody has a story every single parent a lot of people just don't believe their their story is going to matter or they don't know where to go to tell it. So telling their stories at those board meetings make it worth it. We shut shut down Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma's board meeting because they act quite frankly had a black a black board member on there who was acting the same way about the book banning and didn't want uh undocumented parents saying stuff and all that. We showed up in large force and shut her down. She walked off the board meeting, right? Like she couldn't handle it because she's like Oh, well, you got to like you guys are assaulting me. But no, you didn't say that when you were assaulting this Hispanic mom or you was assaulting this LGBTQ student or you um, or you were you were talking about what books should and shouldn't be on the shelves. Right. As a black you were. And so we'll do that whether you black, white or Hispanic. We show up in full force and we don't go anywhere just like stepping in people community. We go where community calls us. Right. And oh, community me, are calling us. Right. Let me ask you this. Cool. Yeah. Has the UN made any commitment to you? We well, will know about it. Forgive me. Yeah, today was just the first day. And I, you asked Bernita, you know, how are we going to hold the National Parents Union going to hold them accountable? This is our first thing as parents doing anything like this, as the National Parents doing anything like this. I think our next steps will be to connect with all those delegates um, from across the globe so that we're connected, so that we can... Um, we're not isolated or trying to do something in silo. What is the next step? So hopefully by Friday, we'll be a little bit more clear um, because every day has a different theme. We'll be a bit more clear as to what the United Nations or this second forum um, is supposed to, what outcomes will happen as a result yeah, I did of ask it. about accountability because accountability is so critically important. Uh, and I was just curious as to uh, what would you started the conversation, Kalia, by talking about resources, financial resources. What else do you want to see come out of this presentation? Like says honored to be invited to present to United Nations, to have a forum where folks around the globe can hear about the issues that are impacting education and students in this country. What would be a win for you if you walked out of there on Friday, to, you know, and you were going to hold your fist up and say, hey, we won. What would be on your list of things that uh, would have been a promise to the National uh, Parents Union? I mean, again, those two things that you stated earlier is good. It's glad to be, you know, invited. It's glad to connect to folks and be on be at this forum but I think um, Bernita hit it, hit on it in her statement to the United Nations was 
United States is supposed to be this thing on the hill or whatever, whatever the metaphor is, right? Um, I, I don't think enough countries are calling out the United States when it comes to, again, the disparities, the historical uh, context of the transatlantic slavery, the Jim Crow era, mass incarceration, schools, literally a school to prison pipeline. I had a legislator tell me, oh, that doesn't exist. It's just a, a, a phenomenon or a educational jargon. No, that is real life. For black, brown, indigenous kids and kids with special with special needs, literally, you're going from school and you're getting arrested on school in some in some um, cases where you're even having cops in the schools. So for me, a win. The United Nations would say all of the nations will say yes. We will make sure when it comes to the black people, those who are descendants of slaves in this country, that we will tell the United States how can you condemn anybody right. about right. anything. Without well, first turning the mirror your at background. yourself. Right. Look at yourself. Right. Uh, ladies, we are out of time. I want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to join me today. I'm sure the rest of the week will be productive. Uh, I'm hoping that on Friday when you walk out of this forum that you will leave uh, with the kind of results and the kinds of uh, commitments uh, that will help address some of these really, uh, you know, intractable, seemingly intractable entrenched issues. I, I believe there's uh, where there's a will, there's a way. And because of ladies and women and men like you, there will be a way for our kids. Thank you so much again. The next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.